he's the most loving person ever. I want him to have a relationship with my kid. I mean, that's why, of course, I, I said I wasn't going to do this on this. and <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm now getting emotional. Um, Jack Whitehall, ladies and gentlemen. Actor, writer and award-winning comedian. You are in for a treat. Oh, God, that's tequila. What is the reason why you're a comedian? I use humour to connect with people and have always done so. Growing up, wanting my dad's approval and definitely not receiving it. It dented my confidence, but it also made me like I would one day make him proud. If people really knew you, what would they be most surprised about? I do feel the pressure and I do feel the anxiety of it all. Worrying about stuff that is not worth worrying about. A bad review, rejection, online trolls. So many times I'm just like, why don't I just delete all social media from my phone? That would be such a good thing for my mental well-being. I'm a little bit more sensitive and vulnerable than I tell people. Do you doubt yourself? Yes. What impact does that have on you? Overworking, not prioritising family and... I'm not present when I should be present. Roxy's pregnant now. How are you honestly feeling about it? Now I'm regretting putting this on camera. What you're doing is incredibly high stakes art. Why are you smoking? Oh, Stephen, <laughs> I've got a punchline about off a tramp behind a wheelie bin. I mean, that's not art. <laughs> I've sat here with so many incredible comedians and it's funny because there's there's an ongoing stereotype with comedians that they they get into comedy for a variety of different reasons. A lot of comedians have said to me, you know, com comedians themselves are depressed in some way. Mm. Then I had Jimmy Carr say, say to me, when you meet a comedian, you should ask him which of their parents are depressed. Um, and then I sat here with um, one particular comedian who really didn't fit into any of those um, stereotypes at all. What is the reason why you're a comedian in your own words? I think in the most reductive way, it's because I use humour to connect with people and have always done so. And so I think I've always enjoyed uh, making people laugh. And that's felt to me like a great way to connect with people, whether that be in real life or my audience when I'm up on stage. And I think there are, you know, lots of different reasons that people become comedians. And there is this kind of the sad clown trope. And that's definitely one that does exist. And I think there are people that use comedy for other reasons. But for me, uh, I don't think I fall into that category necessarily. I, I think I, I've always loved comedy and stand up as an art form, because I just really enjoy making people happy and making people laugh and using comedy as escapism as escapism yeah from well from you know it can be from whatever like if you've uh, had a bad day at work and you come and see a stand-up on stage and they make you laugh um bring you out of a dark place or um if you're you know on your phone and watching the news and depressed about the world and then you can go and forget about all of that and you know it's uh, a great way of I think you know just going and uh, completely relaxing and, and listening to someone else entertain you and uh, I think that for me like that's what I see my kind of duty as a comedian as. Your parents are comedians? Yes. I spent a lot of time watching 
the wittering wit white tools yeah on youtube your father in particular is absolutely fucking hilarious yeah <laughs> it, it do you, do you think your sort of comedic edge came from there or because you have siblings right yeah who aren't comedians they're not comedians i mean they're both pretty funny people and there was a lot of laughter in our household when we were growing up and i definitely think my dad in particular was my kind of most you know dominant early comic influence because again i would watch how uh he used humor and how making people laugh was this way that he had to kind of unlock people and he was an amazing raconteur and told these incredible stories and i watched how people would hang on his every word and i remember being really in awe of that and thinking oh i'd love to not only amuse him uh when i'm able to do so but also you know emulate him and and try to be um you know uh someone that people enjoy the company of and the presence of because of my kind of like wit i guess and so yeah he was definitely like for me the person that influenced me the most when I was thinking, oh yeah, that's definitely something that I would be interested in pursuing. When was that point where you thought I could pursue comedy professionally as a real job? Um, I don't know. I, don't, I think it probably wasn't until the Edinburgh Festival when I went to the Edinburgh Festival in my teens and saw stand-up comics. I mean, prior to that, like most of my knowledge of comedy had been stuff that I'd seen on TV and movies and Laurel and Hardy and Norman Wisdom. And that felt like, you know, hilarious, but kind of very alien in a way. And then going up to Edinburgh and seeing like stand-ups performing and people that were maybe slightly closer to me in age and were talking about um, things that I could relate to. And all of a sudden I was like, wow, this is like genuinely a viable career path. Had I known that they were probably all up there performing for a month at Edinburgh and hemorrhaging money and not filling out the venues every night. It's like a really, really difficult career path uh, for the vast majority of comedians. But like I was kind of young and doughy eyed and just saw, you know, the 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 incredible aspect of it, which is, um, you know, <laughs> the other thing that appeals to me about comedy, which is that it's a way of doing something that isn't a real job and isn't sat in an office doing something that to me would be kind of mind-crushingly boring. It's a creative pursuit, which I think I would always have been gravitating towards. Was there not a lot of influences in your life telling you that comedy is not a real job? Like, I, I remember... Not, yeah, definitely a lot. <laughs> who, who were those influences and what were they saying and why didn't you listen? Um, well, so at school, I was always talking about trying to do stuff off my own bat and do sketches and um, taking a show to Edinburgh was my idea and the school were very anti that at the time and the drama teacher thought it was a waste of time. Um, my parents were very, very keen that I didn't necessarily pursue um, a career in the like arts i think because my dad was an agent and he'd looked after loads of really successful actors but he'd also looked after a load of actors that had been out of work and had really struggled and my mum had had a career as an actor that hadn't necessarily given her the fulfillment that i think she wanted it to and you know she'd had some sort of bit parts on television and then had to give it up and so they were very aware that you know that it was a very very competitive industry and so they were very keen that i make sure that I focus on my studies and have something to fall back on if I were to not make it in, uh, you know, the arts. I mean, it was a little ill thought through because 
the other passions that I had were things like art. And so I ended up going to university to study history of art, which I don't necessarily think is, you know, of, of, of industries to fall back on. <laughs> like art history <laughs> is not the most transferable <laughs> skill. And then also by pushing me away from, you know, going to drama school or becoming an actor, which would have been the other thing that I would have wanted to do at that age. I, I was so frustrated that I wasn't able to do that, that I went and I did the degree. And then I was like, oh, well, I need to perform in some way. Oh my God, I could do stand up and they'll have no control over that. So then I started doing stand up as my side hustle. Uh, and, you know, they pushed me into comedy, which again is like a really, really competitive industry. And, um, you know, if they'd wanted me to become a lawyer or a banker, which they always claim that they did, they went about it completely the wrong way. In hindsight, hindsight's such a wonderful thing. What do you think if if you could reverse the clocks now and you could be Jack's parents and you could make the decision for Jack at that age, that really pivotal age, what he did next in the with the intention of accelerating his career, his happiness, his his talent, what what should and what would you do as Jack's parents in hindsight? Oh, I don't know. I Push him towards drama school? Or? No, no, no. I, I, I think they probably, they did probably play it right. <laughs> it's the weird thing. In a roundabout way, it all sort of worked out okay. Um, and I don't, like, don't begrudge them for any of those decisions. Um, and they were, which people are always surprised to hear. <laughs> I was like, they, well, they're not surprised to hear it now because people have seen my relationship with my family. And, you know, we have a, I, I call it a, I call it a travel log, but some people have pointed out it is also almost like a reality television show. We're like the posh Kardashians. <laughs> and so people have ver been exposed to my family and can see that, you know, we have an unusual relationship, but we are very close. But people are always surprised to hear that it was always the case. Even when I was, you know, away at boarding school, we still had like a really good connection. I, in fact, always say that going to boarding school was probably quite helpful to my relationship with my parents. If anyone has seen my father, he's... He's quite, he's better in small doses. <laughs> I think having that distance from him was probably very healthy and is why we had such a good relationship. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things where at the time I was like, oh God, why are you doing this? And I, I mean, when they sent me to boarding school, I was, I, I was so upset. I was like, I do not want to go. I'm happy with my friends. I want to stay in, in London with them at this school. And I was really struggling at that school and I wasn't coming out of my shell and I hadn't found, you know, any of my kind of passions or interests and there was no one cultivating any of them. And so they looked at that and thought we need to do something and make a change. And they found this school uh, in Oxford, which I went around and they met lots of teachers and it had a far more kind of like... Um, it, I don't know, it had like an eccentric feel. It felt like a better fit for me, but it was a boarding school. And so they took me out of the school that I was struggling in and sent me to that boarding school. And I remember being, oh my God, I was so upset. I was like, no, please, I honestly, daddy, I don't want to go. And he said to me at the time, he was like, look, it's fine. If you go there and you don't like it, you can come back after a term. And I promise you, if you turn around and you tell me that, then you can come out and go back to the school that you're at in London. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's, you know, something that I can hold on to. And I remember that really helped get through the first um, term away. And then I asked him subsequently many years later, I was like, you know, when you said that, it really helped. He's like, I had no intention of doing that. <laughs> Even if you had been very upset, you were there for the year. I'd got you in. It had been very hard to get you in there and you were staying whether you liked it or not. 
and I don't know whether that's him sort of slightly being a nuisance, but (laughs) (laughs) there may have been some truth to it. Didn't you, around like 11 or something, audition to be Harry Potter? Yeah. That's that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. I did a bit of child acting. Again, just because I was sort of adjacent to that world and I saw you know, my dad in that industry and my mom and my mom was still acting back then. I was so enamored of it. So as a kid, I did want to do it and, you know, had a few uh, sort of quite uh, low level um, acting jobs as a child with like single lines in TV shows. I got dubbed in one because I couldn't deliver the line properly. I had one line, which was, uh, it's not a monster, it's a rabbit. And I and the day just developed a speech impediment. So I was not a monster, it's a rabbit. And when it actually went out, they redubbed me, so it was another child's voice coming out of my mouth. Oh. <laughs> so I'd had that job, and then I'd had one other job where I had no lines. I had another job that I got, and and I swear this is true, but I, I'd have to, I, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but I, I got like demoted. I got cast in a part where which was like quite a good speaking role, and then like on the day. All of a sudden, I was. It was goodbye, Mr. Chips, with Martin Clunes, and all of a sudden, I was like at the back of the class and had no lines. And I can't, for the life of me, understand how that happened. I mean, I was very young at the time. Maybe I was just so terrible that <laughs> they saw me in the rehearsal and thought, "Nah, you're now um, out of shot, right at the back." Um, and then Harry Potter, yeah. So that was around the time that obviously I was doing these little acting roles, and then there was this audition for Harry Potter. Uh, and they did an open casting at my school. Uh, they came with a casting director to, to to kind of audition loads of kids and they were doing it around the country. And there was a lot of like uh, excitement about this because obviously the book was so popular. Um, and I remember calling my dad and saying, they're doing this open casting and I'm going to enter myself into it. And he was like, oh no, that's a complete waste of time. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, uh, they never cast anyone at these open castings. It'll be some casting director's assistant, assistant. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's a complete waste of time. If you genuinely want to audition for Harry Potter, I will get you in front of the casting director. So he drove down to Oxford, took me out of school for the day, got me down to London, through some connections of his, managed to get me an audition with the casting director of Harry Potter. Uh, I went into the um, casting room and completely tanked the audition because I was not a very good actor as a child as is proven by the track record up until that point I also hadn't read the book um because I've just never been a great reader and uh I'd read like the first couple of chapters and then got bored and I didn't have any knowledge of the the plot of Harry Potter and that was exposed in the audition as well and so it was about as bad as an audition could go. And I came out and I looked at him and was like, yeah, I don't think you need to worry about, <laughs> oh, uh, gosh. about that one. And then the, I think the nice heartwarming uh, end to this story, my dad having been, you know, outrageous in his behavior and the, the, the nepotism being out of control in the open casting, uh, they cast Emma Watson as Hermione. And she did get cast from just... Uh, entering through the correct channels and not calling up her dad and asking him to get her in front oh, of the wow. casting director. And she had that wonderful life-changing opportunity, which she earned. And that's the way that it should be. <laughs> but I look at all of that and I go, that that phase of your life, it doesn't seem like there was a ton of conv- self-belief. Because uh, you've got your dad, your dad sort of chiming in at parts, saying, subtly saying, the odds aren't good, son indirectly and then you know the the 
being sent to the back of the classroom in the, mm. the acting thing you do. Subtle knocks. Yeah. Does that stay with you as you go into comedy? And, and is that an accurate assessment of how you were feeling at that point? Yeah, I definitely was not very um, confident at that age. Um, and I was quite... I was quite odd and eccentric and in the right company and in a safe environment and around my kind of family I think I was a little bit more confident but at school I certainly wasn't I was very awkward like very like unfortunate looking child as well I had huge buck teeth um and glasses and like a cowlick and you see photographs of me from then and you look like a kid that would not have a lot of confidence <laughs> and then had the like you know the massive braces in my face for for a long period of my childhood and that made you know that uh, there was definitely a lack of confidence because of that and the, the, you know the various knockbacks and and then realizing oh I quite like acting and performing and you know for for years I would audition for all of these school plays and I would never get cast in anything and so that didn't help and and also, you know, I guess wanting my 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 dad's approval, which I always did, you know, right from the get go, and and definitely not receiving it like that. It did it dented my confidence, but it also made me like I don't know. I think it gave me a kind of resolve that I would I would one day achieve it, and I would make him proud, and uh, you know because he'd been sort of dismissive of oh, you you don't want to become an actor and you're never going to become an actor. That made me want to do it even more and be like oh no no I, I really think I can do this um, and then with the comedy thing the other aspect is that he was and remains the hardest person to crack ever like he doesn't laugh at anything and you know I, 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 I do have that like overriding memory that as a kid like I always was desperate to try and make him laugh and to, to like crack him and to, to if I could get him to laugh like that felt like such an achievement and even to this day, you know, like when he comes to do shows or if I'm doing things with him, like he's a really hard, like tough crowd. He's got, <laughs> as you've seen, like a real, I mean, resting bitch face. I believe it's <laughs> what the kids are calling yeah. it. And uh, yeah, if I can even get like a smile from him, it transports me back to being, you know, 12 or 13 years old and having that same thing of I really want to make him laugh. Has he had any sort of acting qualifications or anything? Because when I saw him on Chatty Man yeah. with you, um, I was thinking, God, he's an unbelievable actor. He's an unbelievable actor. Like he's, he, you're right, just yeah. steel face. Yeah, yeah. No, he's had no training at all. But I guess just because he does so so little and, and gives away so little that, I don't know, that almost feels like it's performative and maybe it is to an extent. But no, he's, yeah, he's had absolutely no training whatsoever. <laughs> So you go off and you do the, you go up to Edinburgh, you see that, that's yeah. a big inspiration for you. What happens next? How do you go from there to doing shows and climbing up the comedic ladder very, very quickly? So then I, yeah, I went to Edinburgh with a sketch show with two of my friends from school and we did it um, at the Pleasance and we did a month in this tiny room that's now a disabled toilet. That's how small it was. Um, and there was like, you know, 10 seats and us performing this sketch show. We had no idea what we were doing. It was all kind of cobbled together sketches that we'd copied from Not the Nine O'Clock News and League of Gentlemen and got terrible reviews. But um, 
in the middle of it, I came out and did stand up and I'd never done stand up before. And I thought that stand up was just something that you could do. I'd never done a gig. I literally just walked out in the middle of this sketch show and did 10 minutes of stand up. Um, it was described by one reviewer as Jack Whitehall appears on stage in the middle of the show and does an impression of what he thinks a stand up is. And that is a pretty fair assessment of what it was. But um, a guy called Ben Cavey, who uh, was a producer at the time, came to that show and saw me and saw that there was, I had some promise or there was something that he recognized in me that he thought, you know, I had some potential. And so I then uh, went and met with him when I was down in London. He worked for Tiger Aspect, who are a great production company. He made Mr. Bean, Catherine Tate, Benidorm, all of these shows and with him i started developing um he asked me to uh do tour support for uh horn and corden uh when james corden and matt horn were doing their double act mm -hmm. around the time of gavin and stacy because he was working on a show with them and he said oh there's this guy who i saw at edinburgh he's really funny he's very new very young uh, you're doing these warm-up shows of your sketch show. You should get him to come out and uh, he could do some stand-up before uh, you go on. And so I did support for them and that's how I met James and how I met Matt, who would end up being in my sitcom. And uh, James and Matt were kind of quite instrumental in me getting my first television gig as well. So uh, they um, they did a Big Brother's Big Mouth and they were like the guest hosts on that and they were meant to do a whole series and they had to pull out and because they'd seen me do stand up for them as their warm up act. James like was very good at kind of, you know, uh, speaking to whoever the person was at channel four and saying, Oh, you know, you should get to host this show is Jack. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up doing like live TV hosting big brothers, big mouth, which was the show that kind of had created Russell brand. And I was, I was 18 or 19, 19. I was I was young and very 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 inexperienced. Like my comic persona was, you know, all over the shop because I hadn't like found my voice yet, and mm -hmm. I was already on TV. I got definitely got catapulted onto television far too quickly. Like I always say this: like you look at like Mickey Flanagan or John Bishop or any of the kind of like really established comedians when they break and they become tv stars they've been doing it for 10 years and they've honed their act and they know exactly who they are and you get like the finished article when i was put on tv i was like still basically an open mic comedian almost i mean i'd done paid gigs but i was still like going on and talking in a mockney accent because i hadn't worked out what like like that i could be myself on stage i was so terrified to to go up onto a stand-up comedy stage and talk in my voice because I was like, they're all going to hate me. No one's going to want to like listen to some public school by waffling on. So I'm going to have to disguise that and I'm going to go on and I'm going to talk like Danny Dyer. And so for the first couple of years of my like stand up career, I do that. And all these other comedians afterwards, they would be like, oh, yeah, well, you've got some great stage presence, but you just you haven't found your voice yet. And I was like, oh, well. Could you, could you tell me what my voice is? And they're like, that's not really how it works. You need to find your voice and you'll go on a journey. I was like, yeah, just cut the Yoda crap. Like just what is my voice? And I found it so frustrating. But that is a process that you have to go through as a comedian. You need to find your voice. And my problem was when I was trying to find my voice, 
I, like, I didn't even know who I was as a person back then. I was 18, 19 years old. Like I'm like at that age, like I don't think you've like formulated who you are. And so I was in this kind of weird like period of flux where I was trying all these different comic personas. I settled on this one that was like basically a kind of <laughs> like a homage to Russell Brand. It was so inauthentic. It wasn't who I was, but, you know, it gave me a kind of a little bit of a, I guess a little bit of an armor that I was hiding behind a kind of character almost. And it gave me some confidence. And so I was, I was, I was in that kind of like period of my um, like development when all of a sudden I was doing like live television for the first time. And I watch some of the footage back of me from those early days. And I want to hide behind the sofa. It's so cringe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've got this big shock of like electric hair. I'm wearing these skinny jeans. I look like I've just fallen out of the Hawley arms. And <laughs> I'm talking in a way that just bears no correlation to like who I am. It was, it was, it's very strange. Do you not, do you not have imposter syndrome at all? Because, you know, you come in at 19, 20 years old to an industry full of, you know, veterans and people that look like they know what they're doing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Just playing a good job of like knowing, knowing what they're doing. Do you feel that at that young age? Yeah, I think I did feel a little bit of that. Um, but yeah, I think I, I was just probably, I don't know, so ambitious that uh, I went into those dressing rooms. And even though I was kind of in awe of a lot of these people, again, I was just like, well, I really want to kind of prove myself. And Every time I had a bad gig, you know, I'd always, my takeaway would be, well, I need to just like get better then and I will get better and I know I can get better. Um, and I, and I, I, yeah, I think I had quite a lot of resilience. Uh, I was naive, but the naivety probably helped get through some gigs that if I'd been a little bit older, I would have been like, why the hell am I doing this? And also, you know, obviously, I mean, it helped very much that I come from a background of privilege and that I was, you know, wasn't having to support a family or pay a mortgage and I could kind of pursue this fool's errand for a bit. What's a what's a bad gig, you know, for for, for someone like you? What does that feel like? What does it look like? Um, I think I mean, I've had so many bad gigs. <laughs> back in the day it was going and doing 10 minutes in a pub and performing to 20 people you're set up to fail really because mm. it's never going to be a stormer because the environment is not conducive to comedy because you're in a noisy pub fighting against a you know fruit machine and some of the people are on their phones some of the people are sort of half listening to you there's like a tinny microphone, terrible sound system. Uh, and you're going on like 10th on the bill and everyone's a bit drunk and you're never going to kill that gig. And then you go, will go out and you do 10 minutes of your material and it like barely raises a titter. And then you've got to get on a train and go back to London and be in your own thoughts for two hours. Like that's pretty soul crushing. But I don't know why. I don't know why I like, and there were a lot of those at the beginning. I think probably because I was like still at that point, I was living in Manchester with all of my mates in a student house and having like a great time. Didn't have many worries in the world. 
because I was 18, 19, and I was going off and doing these gigs. And sometimes they'd go well, and sometimes I would crash and burn. But I don't know, it just didn't, like, I didn't, I didn't feel the pressure. That, that's what was so amazing about that period of my life, is that I just don't remember feeling any pressure. And now, if I tank a gig or I go out and, you know, mess up the Brit Awards... I do feel the pressure and I do feel the anxiety of it all. And I, and I didn't have as much professional anxiety back then because I was sort of on a relatively upward trajectory. Um, and, you know, it all felt so full of possibility. I, I just think I was sort of unburdened by all of the kind of anxieties that I would have now as a comedian and a performer. Reminds me of my conversation with Lewis Capaldi. He, he told me about, singing in pubs in Scotland and like no one was really listening. Yeah. And he almost talks about it as if he would prefer to go back and do that now because it because there's no arenas, there's no expectations, there's no pressure. And I actually think he said on the podcast, I think he said like, I just want to sing in a pub in Scotland. Yeah. Um, your success and his success have meant that that's, you know, that's, I, I would say not, po it's, it's just certainly possible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but even if you were announced to, as being in a pub, expectation would show up. Yeah, yeah, and I and I do, and I and I and I connected with his documentary in, in in that aspect when I watched it and saw, like him articulate some of those elements because that is it is so true, and you know, you yeah you you do a show now and you're putting it on in an arena and like the level of expectation is so much higher and you've got to shift, you know, a huge amount of tickets. There's going to be reviewers there. You've got to entertain like a vast crowd if it goes wrong like that's a news event and back then it, there was none of that like I'd die in a pub you know <laughs> if Jack Whitehall crashes and burns in the middle of an empty forest does he make a sound <laughs> and my forest was a pub in Preston <laughs> does, does that make does that make it less fun is there like a, a oh God, I enjoyed point. it in a yeah. really, in a weird, in a weird, in a, and I still do to an extent when I'm like, maybe more so now, like when I'm working it through, there is like a sadomasochistic thing that quite enjoys like the, the tricky gigs and like working out why, why it hasn't worked and what I need to do to, to get it to work. Like I do. But I mean, the pressure now, does that make it less fun? Oh, the pressure. Sorry. Yes. Um, because you've used the word professional anxieties a few times. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, th that element of it does, for sure. And I don't remember feeling that when I was in my kind of early 20s. But all of a sudden, they sort of creep up on you and you're, you're in your own thoughts a lot more. Um, and constantly, like, like I don't know, <laughs> just thinking about, uh, about, like, I just for me it's like worry that it will all go away and like that's that's always like the the kind of the great the greatest fear is that it's just going to stop and and I and I've loved doing it but yeah that there, there are there are lots of other added pressures that weren't existent when I started doing it and I I I look back on it and uh yeah do kind of like miss that headspace a lot of people can relate to that I that fear of um worrying that it'll all go away mm. even you know people that have climbed the corporate ladder they've gotten to a certain position and i've seen it a lot of the times with some of my friends and even in some of my companies where people will say to me that they're just trying to kind of hang on to where they are yeah and when you have that mindset it can it can it seems like it can be quite 
unenjoyable because mm. there's that constant sort of, as you describe, anxiety. Um, but also, I, I'm not sure if everyone does their best work when they're kind of hanging on because there's there's not this sort of mental freedom to mm. fully express or to relax or take time off. So I'm not sure if we do our best work. It, is that is that what you're saying? You feel like you're you have a constant worry that everything you've built might someday change. And I guess the more important question is where, do you know where that's come from in you? Mm. That, that idea that it could just. No, I mean, I don't know. I don't know where it comes from, but, and, and, and it, I don't know. And, and I don't, and, it, and it's not like a cancel culture thing of me going, Oh, look, I'm worried I'm going to say something. And then all of a sudden like, I'm going to get canceled and then I'm never going to be able to do shows again. It doesn't, it, it's not even like, linked to that although obviously there is like a small chance that that could happen i don't i don't necessarily feel like uh i push the boundaries in such a way that that feels likely but yeah i don't know how i have i've allowed that to sort of creep up on me um and i think i think the the the, the key to not uh, allowing that to consume you is to sort of just try to refocus your mind on like what's important and you know ultimately some of the things that are you know the concerns that like build up as professional anxieties ultimately aren't as important as long as you're doing like ultimately as long as I'm still doing stand-up and still doing what I love and still getting to you know act and perform it doesn't necessarily matter you know how how I'm doing that. I'm doing what I love, and and that should be enough. And and then also just like refocusing my energies on like my work life balance and focusing on what's important: my relationship, family. Those are the things that make me happy. And as long as those are working, then I think I will feel fulfilled. Um, and so I think it's yeah, it's how I like frame that in in my head. Even from doing this, because I'm I'm not journalist or if I didn't go to yeah. podcast school or whatever yeah. I still sit here and go how the fuck is this still a thing like how yeah. how are people still listening to this we admit it I mean Jack did productions beforehand but you Jack you've never done anything like this before have you I've never done anything like this before mm. so it's all a little bit what the fuck is going on <laughs> yeah just keep, keep yeah. going yeah. and hopefully nobody notices us yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's like almost the feeling because you almost assume that all of your com competitors or the other people that are doing it in your space, they have some certificate yeah. that has like given them the right <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, a, and a rule book that we're, that we're not privy to. Yeah. Um, can you relate to any of that? That yeah. feeling that like... Yeah, you, I mean, there is, yeah. And there is no kind of like playbook for it, is, is there? Like with a career and with, you know, with all of it. So I, I like the, the worst thing you can do is start like, comparing yourself to other people and like thinking about that too much as well. And I mean, so, so many times I'm just like, why don't I just delete all social media from my phone? I think it would be such a good thing for my like mental well-being. I just haven't quite brought myself to do it yet, but maybe that's something that I should try. But it's just the, like the worrying about stuff that is not worth worrying about. It's like, I wish I, I want to get better at that. I really want to like work at that. What impact does that have on you? That I'm not present when I should be present. I think that's that's where I feel it, it is most frustrating in my life is when I'm worrying about fucking nonsense that doesn't need to be 
consuming me and I'm not present with friends and family and uh, people that I need to like, give more of myself to. What's an example of something that might consume you, like a little troll online or like a review or? I mean, yeah, I mean, that can, it can take me out for a couple of days. Uh, like rejection, uh, professional rejection, not getting a part in something, uh, a bad review, things like that. And then for a couple of days, I'll sort of be spinning out and then, you know, I'll catch myself doing it and be like, oh, what am I doing? I don't need to do that. I have more sensitivity, I think, than I sort of let on. I've always sort of billed myself as being quite resilient and thick skinned, which I am to a degree, but I think there are things and elements where I am a little bit more sensitive and vulnerable than, than I, uh, than I tell people. You and me both. Yeah. You and me both. And I think obviously in different jobs that I've had, I've had to be, I've been the CEO of the companies. Mm. So you, you kind of learn to put up a, everything's fine. Yeah. Cool. But some, you can be behind the scenes, like spinning out a little bit for a couple of days based yeah. on something. When you say spinning out, what does that, if I'm Roxy, yeah. your wonderful partner, yeah. what would Roxy observe when Jack is spinning out? That, that I'm in a sort of weird fugue state because I'm also one of those people that's just like, I'm a barrier. I don't articulate a lot of, uh, of these emotions and I and I do and I definitely I don't know whether it's because of my background or my upbringing but I'm someone that doesn't really want to burden people with them I feel like as well as a comedian as a funny person again I like I feel like I'm letting people down if I'm like a Debbie Downer and talking about stuff that uh is gonna you know kill the mood I just I'm don't like conflict I I don't like uh, to depress people. So I think I sort of, I like, yeah, bury it all, put it on a brave face. And then, um, yeah, just maybe not quite myself. So you probably wouldn't even realize it was going on. But I think for rocks, it's, it's hard because, yeah, sometimes I'm just like a little bit away with the fairies. But that's because I'm having this like <laughs> internal dialogue. For three is days. everything going to be okay oh my god they hate me no 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 you're going to be fine and that's all going on and I'm like yeah yeah I'm fine yeah. <laughs> someone said to me once they said the people that care most about the applause which tends to be like performers and comedians yeah. and stuff also care the most about the booze yeah do you, do you think that's accurate yeah like uh, it's not possible just to care about one yeah. side of that spectrum you can't just care about the applause and then say oh booze don't matter I don't care I'm yeah. invincible yeah it's yeah. feedback isn't it no definitely it's def yeah it's definitely feedback and you know like audiences that upset me or online trolls i mean i do consume quite a lot of that if i if i'm brutally honest with myself i probably consume more of it than i should um and read it and and, and again i'm like i think it's fine i think it sort of bounces off me but maybe it doesn't <laughs> bounce off me as much and i'm like it's all stored away somewhere um you know it's quick but I don't know, I also like part of me, and I, I'm not encouraging people to troll me online. <laughs> but I'm like, there is a good, it's good to like keep your ego in check as well. I do like, like constructive criticism as well, I think is very useful. And like some feedback, because if you didn't have any of that and you were just like, you, you just went on the reaction to the audiences of paid punters that have come to see you and clearly are like on side and it's like a home gig because they're you know fans of you that have bought a ticket to you and that was your only like interaction <laughs> and that was where you kind of 
garnered what like your relationship with the public was you would think you were just like the messiah <laughs> and so it's quite good to be reminded yeah there are some people that find you a bit much and but has, has their feedback those people those trolls has it made you a better comedian I mean, every now and again, I get quite a good, like, you know, joke from something that someone said. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I don't think it's made me a better but comedian. But when someone calls, says on Twitter that my new hairstyle looks like a Tesco's Value Richard Hammond, I'm like, I <laughs> <say> that. <laughs> those are quite rare. Normally, it's like, why is this posh twat on television every time I turn it on? <laughs> no, I can't want that. <laughs> When you, when you bury stuff, though, like a seed, it kind of grows. I always always think this. And I think it subtly changes us over time, all the things we have buried. Mm. Like, even if we don't ever express it or whatever, I feel like it kind of just infects our character a little bit. Yeah. That's certainly what's happened to me, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Just over time, I think slowly, the things that I've, like, buried or ignored, they kind of just weigh me down a little bit. And yeah. you might become a little bit snappier yeah. or a little bit, you know, more impatient or negative about the world or whatever. Is that the case with you? Yeah, I think for me the main way it it affects me is 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 like it's like a fo- it is just, it is ultimately just like a focus thing. It's like focusing on it. It makes me focus on the wrong things, and that's the thing that I struggle with most in my life. Is my like is work life balance. I think I'm terrible at work life balance, and I, I always have been because I started when I was seventeen and I just didn't stop, and so. Uh, used to hate going on holidays. I was like, go on a holiday. It's a complete waste of time. And I, I remember like calling my agent and my dad from a beach somewhere going, I can't wait to get home. And I've always had that like weird attitude um, to like work and wanting to work, 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 work. And, and I'm, I'm about to have quite a big life event. And I think that will... What life uh, event, Jack? <laughs> I'm about to have a baby, which I'm like, I'm so excited about. And also I'm just like, the thing that I pray that it does is just completely like shifts my focus. And, and I'm so excited to have this little being in the world that is more important than anything else. And I think that's going to be such a healthy thing. And I know that's not necessarily the reason to have a child. I probably should have worked through some of these things before the baby arrived. But like, that's an element of it that for some people might be quite daunting, but I'm like, I think that's going to be amazing. And, and I'm really, really excited and I can't wait to be a dad. And I'm like, it just, it's just really, really cannot wait to like sort of step up to the plate and 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 try to be the best dad that I can be and have that as my focus and and when I'm focused on that and not thinking about all of the other stuff I think it's gonna just be great maybe that's quite a glass half full well yeah it sounds like a conversation that I've been having with myself but also with my partner where Mm. I've said to her because she's scared that I'm I might just keep working and she I think she asks me once every month she goes are you going to be like this when we have kids together yeah. and I'll go, no, 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 I'll change. Yeah. When the, yeah, when the, when the yeah. baby comes, yeah. I will be different. Yeah. I'll, I'll just cancel stuff. I'll say no to everything. Yeah. Look at your face. Yeah, no, I'm having all of these conversations. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I've always said, you, you don't know. Yeah. You don't know what, what will happen. None of us have ever experienced that feeling that some of our friends, I'm sure have explained where your priorities mm. shift upon the arrival of this mm. Arsenal, baby. <laughs> well, you know, baby Arsenal work. <laughs> do, you, do you think, I've asked a few people this, because when I meet someone that describes themselves as being a bit of a workaholic, I wonder whether, dri- whether they are driven or whether they are being dragged. Which, which resonates more with you? Do you think you're driven or do you think you're being dragged? 
I think I'm driven. I think I'm, if, yeah, I'm driven. I think it would be quite helpful to be dragged back a bit sometimes. <laughs> I definitely think it would be good. Because I have this weird career where I, I act and I write and I do stand up as well. It's very easy to fill my entire diary all the time. Um, and if I look at it, like, you know, a couple of months, I'm like, I'm not doing anything there. You know, I, I was meant to be filming a movie then and it's been delayed now and I've got two months. So I was like, well, I need to do stand up and I'm going to write a script and uh, going to produce as well. And I have a production company, so I'm constantly developing things. And I just like, and, and that all comes from me. That's not people going, oh, Jack, can we, we've got this gap. Can we do this now? It's me going, we can do this now and we can fill this now and we can develop that and I can write this and, and, I, and I cram so much stuff into, you know, my schedule. Uh, and I think again, like, you know, professionally, it might be better to, to, to take a beat sometimes and prioritize like taking some time off as well and having a little bit of headspace. I mean, the pandemic was weirdly a time when we were forced to do that. And I found, found it very helpful creatively to, to not be working all the time. And, and this stand up tour, I've had longer to prepare for it than I've ever had. And I've had way more kind of headspace and space to like like live my life a bit which is so important when you're creating and you're writing especially when you're trying to you know write personal material you need to live your life you can't be working all the time because then all of your experiences are going to be professional ones no one wants to go and watch a stand-up comedian tell a load of jokes about what it's like being on set and like <laughs> anecdotes about like uh you know uh script reads and whatever like that's not interesting comedy material for anyone and fame as well i don't think is necessarily always the best uh kind of you know source of relatable stand-up so i think it's really important as a comedian to have that time to go and like live your life and build up some experiences and and, and find inspiration as it naturally occurs rather than trying to force it and on a personal level um, that, that conversation about work-life balance and giving yourself some time and not just cramming everything into the, mm. the calendar. What are the consequences of you not being balanced as it relates to your personal life? That I think, uh, yeah, I, 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 I seem to sort of, that's the perennial mistake that I make is overworking, not prioritizing friends and family and and then having to sort of make up for it. And I don't want to always be making up for it. Um and I think I'm quite good at making up for it. And, uh, you know, I then put a lot of pressure on myself. Oh, I've got to like see all of these people and, and make sure that I cram in a load of social situations and sneak in a little holiday there. And, 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 that, and I wish I didn't have that approach because then everything feels rushed and, mm -hmm. and I'd prefer it not to feel as rushed. I'd prefer to... Yeah, just, uh, but look, it's all going to be fine. When the baby comes, it's all going to change like that. <laughs> how are you feeling? How Overnight. Are you, how are you honestly feeling about, about you know, Roxy's sort of five months mm. um, pregnant now? How are you honestly feeling about becoming a dad? I'm feeling excited. It's hard. It's a weird one because like, sometimes it feels very real. And then sometimes it's just a sort of abstract concept idea. an idea and it feels very very surreal um and it sort of flits between 
both of those things on almost like a daily basis. Uh, and sometimes I feel overwhelmed thinking about it. Other times I'm like, like barely engaged with it at all because I'm so distracted with other things. And so it's a really weird emotional place to be in right now, like this sort of run up to, to having a kid. And, and I've spoken to lots of friends that have been in this period as well. And a lot of them have said that that's quite normal as well. That, you know, again, there's sort of no right way to be feeling at any one time. Um, and that, you know, and I'm, you're thinking about her and, and, and looking after her. She's had some like health issues as well. And so we've had a bit of a journey to get here. And, and so there's, it's it's quite a, it's quite a scary period as well. Like I, I know I'm just really looking forward to the moment when the baby is born, and then I mean I say that like then and then you can relax. No, it's then stressful <laughs> for the next like like eighteen years. eighteen years, and so it doesn't stop then. Um, again, like maybe I've just framed it in in quite a, a positive way. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I'm I I don't know I am. I'm ex I'm excited about being a dad because I never thought that I would get to it this early either. I honestly, because my dad was, you know, fifty, nearly fifty when he had me. He really, he was fifty. I've made that. My math is right. 50. Yeah, he was nearly fifty, and so I was like, well, I'll be an old dad. You know, I'll you know live my best life, and then when I get to fifty, then I'll just pop out a couple of kids. Be great. Um, and honest, and and always thought that that was the case. Uh, and then ultimately started looking at friends and seeing how happy they were. And my sister with her niece and my niece, not her niece, <laughs> my sister and my niece and thinking, oh, you know what, maybe I, maybe I do want that. And, and then like began to really like yearn for it. And I was lucky that I met Roxy, who's just the right person and my person. And, uh, we felt like we were both ready. And so, yeah, um, it's it's it, I think people will be surprised when they find out that I'm a lot of people were with friends and family when I told them I think because they just didn't think that I was necessarily ready for it which again like in my weird mentality just makes me go oh I'm going to prove you prove you <laughs> I'm going to show you I'm going to be the best dad ever so is there a fear because I think if I'm being completely honest with myself and I don't think I've said this before when I think about the prospect of having a child, which is again, a, something that I really want to do. Mm. And I see myself as having four kids. And I also see myself as hopefully being a really attentive, present father. There is a little bit of a thing in my head that goes, you don't have any time as it is, Steve. Yeah. So something's going to have to give and it's going to be your career in some respect. Like there's going to be some element of reduction in your career. And maybe that's okay. But if I think about it practically, I'm already using all 24 hours in the day. Yeah. So where's it going to come from? Yeah that's definitely a thought that crosses my mind and being realistic about it as well and not it's not something that you can like just like are you, you're not going to want to like just schedule it in or I can do a little <laughs> bit of family time here and then I'll go and uh do some uh you know tour dates in Australia or like I think yeah it's that that's gonna need to be like a significant moment of like change because I'm not going to want to work in the same way that I've worked 
that's why this like yeah this last year has felt a little bit like i don't know like in 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 my head i am definitely like mentally prepared for that i was like the baby is coming in september i'm gonna have it's gonna a be a bit of a sprint tour. there. I'm gonna do a tour, and then I'm and then I'm gonna. I don't want to having a tour, sort of like hanging over me. I wanted to do it now, and um, <laughs> weirdly, a lot of the comedians that I'm friends with, I was like, "Yes, I'm doing a tour, and then having a baby in September." I was like, "You're gonna regret putting that tour in." Then <laughs> you're gonna, yeah, because the, then when the baby's like two, that's when you notice a lot of comedians start getting out on tour because they want to get out the house. Uh... If you look at all of them, yeah, they no. do. I won't have that excuse. The tour will be done. And then you'll be at home for two years. Changing nappies. Are you excited about that? Yes, I am. And I actually I know. know. I know. <laughs> I'm genuinely happy. I'm very excited to do that and to like roll up my sleeves and get involved and be a hands-on dad. And now I'm regretting putting this on camera because she's <laughs> going to have that clipped up. Yeah. You remember when you said this to Stephen? <laughs> Upstairs, now, there's a punami that needs attending to. Yeah, well, I was just saying that <laughs> for the sake of the podcast. <laughs> and you've got this tour coming up called Settle Down. Yeah. You're doing a lot of dates in a lot of places. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How many dates are you doing, Jack? I'm doing, I would say... At, at the time of recording, maybe 40, 50 dates. <laughs> they keep getting added. And so Less it's than hard to keep count. And I actually, in my head mentally, it would be quite good to just think of it as being 40 because that sounds quite manageable. But it may be a few more now. How are you honestly feeling about it? Give me all the emotions. Uh, weirdly, I'm actually kind of excited for it to just start and to just be doing it. Um the the bit that's a bit of a slog is is the sort of build up to it and the writing of it and the getting it all ready in time and booking all of the venues and doing the promo and talking through the design and you know it's a whole you know production and it's just and it all has to come through me um it's quite hard to delegate when you're 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 building something like that and so i'm really really excited to just be then on the road doing the shows and that's all i have to worry about mm. um and and I remember that I remember this feeling before in the run up to the show being like, I'm just desperate for the first one to to come about so I can then just like actually be doing it. And then when I'm on the road, I love it. I try to not do too long of a tour um, in terms of like, you know, a lot of comics will go out for like six months or a year. And I find, I mean, <laughs> in a quite brutal way, just after a while, I just begin to hate the sound of my own voice and get bored of the material and I don't know. I I like doing it in quite a kind of condensed burst, and uh, you know, then like keeping some kind of like momentum going and doing a couple of shows, having a day off, and a couple more shows, and and I love it. I I honestly, it's like I've had a long period away from it. Uh, you know, four years is the biggest gap I've had between tours, and I I'm just I'm excited to be doing it again, and and they're they're like. I was talking to the, I can't remember who it was, but I was talking to an actor, a successful actor. This is about the appeal of stand-up and how you never really get that moment. No matter how big of a movie you, you make, like you might go to a premiere and it gets a great reaction and, and that's amazing and you have good reviews and it does great at the box office or whatever. But like 
that thrill of the live experience. I think it's why so many actors want to be musicians and end up in bands and whatnot so they can have that like experience and like that thing of like going out in front of a, a huge crowd and and like having that live experience and connection with them is like the best thing in the world and it's so hard to replicate that anywhere else mm. what's what's influenced this this show in terms of the jokes in terms of the humor in terms of your style what what, what are the key influences or the differences from previous tours well <laughs> It's called, I, I called it Settle Down because it is sort of about this period of my life where I am settling down, becoming a little bit more of an adult. A lot of my comedy before and my previous tours, it's all about being the sort of man child. And that's kind of like, I guess, you know, on stage, I'm this sort of foppish man baby and telling stories of drunken hijinks and putting my foot in it and Gen generally just being a bit of a sort of clown and and this this show has an element of that and an element of me being self-aware enough to be like this is definitely the like the last show where I can be telling those stories and maybe this is the last moment of my life where I can lean into that and you know that was the sort of feckless misadventure that was my 20s and now i've entered into my 30s i've got a mortgage and a girlfriend and a dog and a baby on the way and i am now you know going to be forced to settle down whether <laughs> i like it or not <laughs> and so it's about this like like this transitional moment of my life and you know talking about the anxieties and the fears of that and like oh my god have i got everything out of my system and um you know i I don't know. I, so it's 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 a lot about that. Have <laughs> I got everything out of my system? Well, I just don't want to, and I I'm not having a pop at him, but like maybe I haven't, and then but I don't know. <laughs> I was gonna say I'll be like a, I'll be like you know a great dad until the kid's eighteen, and then I'll I'll be in what my fifties. So I could just I'll go like. If I haven't got it all out of my system, maybe that that's what happens. The kid turns 18 and I'll go from like Gary Lineker to Wayne Lineker <laughs> like that. And I'll have this other period when I'm in my 50s and 60s and I'm going out and clubbing in Ibiza. <laughs> that's... Oh no. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud, so you can access it from anywhere. And the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky, and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. People see you on stage, and I always find this really interesting about comedians because I watch these comedians. I've watched you for many, many years of my life. Jimmy Carr, Russell Howard, etc. Um, and then when I meet these people, they surprise me. Obviously, because they're not yeah. 
in Jimmy Carr's case, telling like filthy one-liners when they got here. Although yeah. when Jimmy Carr did arrive, the team texted me and said, Jimmy Carr's just walked in and cracked a joke about riding someone's mum downstairs. <laughs> so I thought, oh God, here we go. <laughs> but then when he came up here, a completely different person. There Very was thoughtful person. Incredibly thoughtful person. Mm. Um, what do you think people would be, if people really knew you, yeah. if people really knew the Jack that Roxy, your partner knows, what would they be most surprised about, about you versus their image of you from TV? Yeah, uh, this is something I, I think about a lot. Um, th that kind of disparity between the the comedian that you see on stage and the comedian that is there in real life. Um, and I think I'm relatively close to the, the person that you see on television or the person that you watch on stage. Obviously, that's like a heightened version of myself. And I think the reality is the thing that people will find most surprising is that sometimes I'm quite a quiet person. I'm quite introspective. Um, I can be a little bit shy in some social situations. Uh, I think people would be surprised at that. But then I'm also so conscious as like, oh, I don't want that to ever come across as me being rude or aloof. And 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 yeah, I get a little bit of kind of social anxiety as well. I I, I think I definitely drink as like a crutch because I find it so much easier in certain situations that are overwhelming to have a drink. And, and I find I maybe lean on that a little bit too much. Um, so I think all of those aspects aren't necessarily things that you would look at me and think oh he's gonna have all of that going on but I'm also I'm aware of it so I always feel like I don't want to be a disappointment in real life as well to people especially you know fans or whatever if I meet people and they have an expectation of me I always feel the need to kind of you know not not let them down I think that's why I've always said it's like so much easier if you're jack d or even my dad it's like his persona is sort of grumpy deadpan that's very easy to maintain in real life yeah, yeah. mine is this is like over enthusiastic <laughs> Hi. Like, yeah clown and i'm like oh that is that's quite a lot to to maintain all of the time and especially if you're having a bad day or you're tired or you know you, you, you to have that spark um in your day-to-day -day life can be quite tiring when you when you look back on what got you to where you are now, you're at the top table in your game. When you look back at the components that got you here, what are those components? If your your son or daughter was asking you for those components, um, I would say important elements that I have. I I, I do think uh, I always say this to comedians. I do think you have to build a resilience um, and you know, the ability to kind of learn from your mistakes and your missteps and take on board criticism and use it to get better. Uh, that's definitely an important aspect. I think recognizing people that could be good collaborators could be uh, helpful. I've been very lucky that I've had a lot of really, really great people around me. Um, that guy I mentioned, Ben Cavey, I've worked with him for nearly 15 years. My writing partner, Freddie, I've had some really good agents. Uh, my dad, who's been amazing and has always kind of helped advise me and 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 finding those those kind of people that you can sort of 
work with and put around you and people as well that will challenge you and people that will call you out if needs be. I think if you surround yourself with the wrong people, that's a very surefire way of heading off in the wrong direction. And I feel very lucky that I've got good people around me and have always been able to find good people to put around me and and build good relationships with people that are important. Ultimately, that's having a good judge of character as well. I think that's a really important um, aspect. Um, Your work ethic is clearly one of them. Yeah, I think work ethic is good to have for sure. Um, although I feel, yeah, now <laughs> maybe we can just tone it down a little bit. <laughs> work ethic is good for the kind of takeoff, but then maybe there's <laughs> there's a different speed that you can cruising find once you're airborne. Yeah, cruising. Yeah. What else though? Because we haven't really talked about the creative brilliance in terms of what you're doing is ultimately art at the end of the day. And there's got to be something that's separating your art form from others. Is it in the process? Is it in just a, a natural thing? Is it a, a, a muscle you've built over time? When I think about the your the content you've crafted to go on tour with, why are you smoking? I can't call it art. I can't. <laughs> and I know technically it is, but it's always such a hard one with comedy because I'm like, I'm thinking of some of the routines and I'm just like, Stephen, I've got a punchline about wanking off a tramp behind a wheelie bin. I mean, that's not art. <laughs> but I, if we were in America right now, I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> we're british and i'm like oh no no but there is no i insist kind. there is a there's it's a talent and it's an art and it's one that i couldn't come near when i look at it i look at it with such awe because not only are you because it feels to me like there's such a clear successful failure with mm. every line you deliver yeah whereas in every other game even this podcast eh, some things might be interesting some things might not be but there's no there's no instant feedback on every line that i deliver boom boom yeah. boom 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 so I think it's incredibly high stakes art mm. and something that I could never, ever, I shouldn't say never, ever do. I could do it, but I wouldn't do it anywhere near 1% of what you could do it. So when you think about why you're so good at it, have you been able to diagnose that? People hate these questions because they have no, to say nice things about themselves. No, I'm, I, yeah, I mean, you're right that you can't, you can't, uh, like coast it with stand-up because it is it is it is pretty brutal that is for sure and uh you do get immediate feedback on every single joke that you put out into the world uh but i don't know why why i am any more successful at it than anyone else um i don't know i mean i i don't know whether i'm like the if i look at my faults i'm going straight back to my faults but i don't think i'm like the greatest writer i think i'm a good writer and i can come up with like good jokes and good routines i think i'm i'm a better like i'm better at um performing it i i don't know i, I think that's something that i've learned like i can really sell a joke <laughs> uh which is maybe sometimes to my detriment because you know i could could write better routines if it weren't and but i don't need to i don't know that makes it sound like i'm lazy because i'm but i but i don't i i'm really like working the material as much as i can to try and make it as good as it possibly can be um i can i've got good really good delivery basically i think i'm very good at delivering uh 
Jags. Do you doubt yourself? Yes. <laughs> I read a quote. I think that was... answer made that abundantly clear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some I... of my material can occasionally be a bit ropey, but I can bloody well sell it. <laughs> <laughs> I read a quote, Sky News. I am still sort of dogged by a slight sense of imposter syndrome and the feeling that at any point someone's going to come and tap me on the shoulder and tell me that I need to go on a plane and go home. Yes, that's it. Back to telling inappropriate jokes in a in a pub to 30 people. Yeah, constantly. I feel like that, especially, yeah, with the with the acting and because again, with the acting, it, like even more so because like, I didn't go to drama school. I don't know what I'm doing. And I've been afforded the amazing opportunity of being able to, be in some great shows and some big movies now and again like i've tasted that in the same way that when i had that experience of stand-up i was like oh my god this is amazing and i love this and uh now it's gonna be really hard if i can't do that anymore and but how do you be happy then if there's that constant i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i wish again why could could someone tell me no, that's not how it works. It's like the voice thing again. I'm like, please, could you just say, what's the answer? Um, but that, but it, I, I always find I do this as well, by the way. In any kind of like um, deep dive interview, and you're a wonderful interviewer because, you know, you are able to like get your uh, interviewees to open up more than they normally would. And I feel like I have done that today. But whenever I do that, I then, and it normally happens in print. And it's why I stopped doing print interviews. I don't really do any print interviews because I'd read them back. And I was like, oh my God, I sound so depressing. It's just like self-flagellation for three pages. And I just feel like I read it back and I'm like, is that a reflection of who I am as a person? Because I don't think I'm as depressing as I sometimes come across when I'm talking about myself i think i don't know i don't know why but when i you know i don't know why that that is the case yeah in print interviews i mean the reason i try and avoid print interviews as much as i can as well is because you get a really narrow perspective and it's and what i love about podcasting you're a podcaster as well Mm. is you get it all yes so you can see all of the yeah all of the color and the whole picture so you can see and that's what i love about this especially the way we do it here because we do it we these podcasts last a long time as you can tell yeah um, and there's really no editing at all. So it is what it is. It, exactly. And I think actually, if you heard our interaction written down verbatim in print, you would probably read it back and go, Jack's quite a sad man. Yeah. But yeah. then if you watched and listened to us, mm. then maybe you would ascertain that uh, it's not all doom and gloom. Mm. I'm just, I get a little bit. <laughs> morose when i'm being introspective i think it's really important that particularly the point that even someone in your position has those insecurities about losing their position the self-doubt all of those things that everyone has every day in all in all of their jobs and really like the reason why i start this podcast actually i've come to like learn why we do this podcast Mm. it goes back to the word you said at the very start which was about connection yeah. You said at the start, when you're m- most authentic, when you're most open, people feel connected. Yeah. What you also do for them in those moments is you liberate them from thinking that they're inadequate and broken. Yeah. So by you saying it, you've just liberated a ton of people from thinking that those thoughts that they've been having make them actually an imposter. Mm. That's why we call it a syndrome, because it's actually just a perception we have, which mm. is usually like flawed in some way. 
as it relates to acting though, you are, you got a movie coming up, Robots? Yeah, yeah, that's coming out this summer, um, which uh, was a movie, yeah, we shot that a couple of, couple of years ago, actually been waiting a, a while for it to go through the editorial process, which is another element that I find so frustrating with films is that you film it and then it takes years for it to come out. And uh, you've forgotten you've even done it. But I, I yeah, that, that was a, a, again, like a great experience, really fantastic people to work with, writer, director that I really got on with and Shailene, who's a fantastic actress who was having, you know, a blast working with her. And that's again, like that's, that's one of those things where I'm like, that, that was a moment I was really happy. I really enjoyed the whole process, was working with very good people, very nice people. It was a very happy set, very creative environment. And uh, yeah, like that was one of those moments where I was like, I'm, I'm very professionally content. Your father, do you, um, do you think he's proud of you now? Clearly from the origin of your story, that he was a, a big sort of figure in your life that you tried to impress and please. Yeah. Def, I think you know he is proud of me, and he's expressed that, and and continues to express it. My um, and my mum as well. Like they're so sweet. Um, I'm so happy that they've, you know, had this kind of second wind in their lives as well. Maybe with my dad's, it's a third or fourth wind. I don't know, but yeah, they still come to my shows and you know call me afterwards and say nice things and watch me on tv and then if it's something good they'll text me and you know that means a lot still um Are you still trying to impress him yeah i think so i think so because when i do something that he doesn't think is good enough which you know does happen from time to time he will let me know he's very honest and he's one of the few people that will like really cut through everything and just like be very honest with me um i mean the other thing that we haven't sort of touched upon and again is 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 something that's very present in my mind with all of this in terms of having a baby in terms of you know trying to achieve as much as i can in my career is that i want to do all of it with him around and obviously i know that that's not going to be the case forever uh and so i think that yeah i mean that's why oh god i I said I wasn't going to do this on this, and I'm 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 now getting emotional. I um I wanted to have a, a a baby because I wanted him to be around and to know my child and to spend time with my kid. Uh, I've seen how, how amazing he is with my niece. He's the most loving person ever, and so I want him to have a relationship with my kid. And then, yeah, I I want to do all of these things and, uh, you know, have success in my career that I can share with him and he can see these things and, and enjoy them. And if the, you know, yeah, I, 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 I love having him there for all of that. And uh, so, yeah, I do still think a lot about impressing him and... Uh, his his approval still means a, a hell of a lot to me. It's such a beautiful thing, you know. It's such a beautiful thing. Yeah, I admire that closeness you have with your father so much. And even when I I see you like doing 
you know gigs and stuff together and doing like you know you did the netflix thing with him it's such a special thing it's i feel and i'm so lucky as well that i've had the opportunity to do it and you know it's it's never lost on me the 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 amazing thing about doing that show as well is having people that come up to me and they say you know like i watched it with my dad and you know i have you know a, a really good relationship with my dad and we watched your show and then we went away and we did a, a trip together and it was one of the i'm so happy that we did it and uh you know or and the, or the flip side of that is yeah i have people that you know maybe lost a parent and uh have watched the show and, and really connected to it because it's reminded them of the relationship that they had with their um father when when they were around and and i think you know I just I know I know how lucky I am to have had that um that experience with him and, and continue to have experiences with him and to work with him and, and it never feels like work when I'm doing stuff with him. It honestly, you know, it's I mean partly because of the the shooting hours that he insists upon <laughs> and the hour long break for lunch, uh with a wine present wherever we are, whatever you know, the situation is, you know. But just hanging out with him, it just feels like that's it. It can, it can never feel like work because it's 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 my dad, and and yeah, I I cherish like hanging out with him so much. There's so much banter when you guys are together on the screen. But I I wondered, you know, from hearing what you said about him today, like does he does he truly know what he means to you and the impact he he's had on your life? I think so, but I think mainly from hearing me talk about it when he's not there because i don't think i necessarily would ever articulate these feelings to him just because that's not like the nature of our relationship the reality is a lot of the time when we're talking we're talking about you know we talk about work stuff quite a bit we talk about football we'll talk about current affairs things like that but we don't really talk about our emotions and never really have um but i think he knows it and I think, I think he's, yeah, he, I think he's very, very, very aware of it. Um, and I'm glad that he is as well. I'm glad that he knows how much he means to me because um, I don't think I would necessarily be able to say it to him <laughs> if he were sat in front of me. A lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. For some reason, it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. I, I th yeah, I, and I, I I look at him and I'm like, oh, how, what will I uh, from will take from him when I become a dad? And you know, I think he's uh he's surprisingly he is more affectionate though than people think. Like because that, that's obviously not an aspect of him that you ever see on any of the Netflix shows or on his podcast or or, or whatever. But like I don't know, just yeah, what what watching how he is with my niece and and knowing what he was like when we were like very little it's like i yeah i, I want to be like that and and he he took a decision in his life as well you know he had a very successful career and was a producer and an agent and then he really did he he did wind it all down and stop when we were kids and spent i mean i know again we went to boarding school so we were away for for for, for a period of of our youth but he did you know spend a lot of time with us and he was very like present in our lives and and wasn't as consumed with work uh and 
and I think that was a good a good decision of his. And so I think that's why I'm aware that it's even more important, like, to make sure that I address that work life balance thing mm. when my child comes along, because I do want to have enough time to like, you know, be a attentive and present parent. I think about this a lot with with my dad. I've, I've talked about it quite often on this show that the last thing I want to have is 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 almost like regrets of words unspoken. When my mm. dad's my dad's seventy odd years old now, and um, we've not had the closest relationship over the years, and I've also struggled. Like mm. I've, I took him to the World Cup and stuff, but we never really talk. Yeah, yeah. About, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I find it much easier to say things to him maybe on on this podcast or on text maybe yeah, but yeah. to to say it's such a strange thing that with my partner i can be open and expressive but with my dad it's like yeah you know and i i worry if i'm being honest about the regrets of the words unsaid yeah so, so there'll be times where it won't be father's day or other days maybe his birthday where i'll just try and express it yeah you have do you write it down do you I write it yeah, down yeah yeah But it is, if, it's hard, isn't it? It's where if someone doesn't re- receive it how you want it to be received as well, it can it can make it very difficult. Yeah. And there are, you know, especially like men of that generation, it's just very, because it must have been so different with his father. His father and so, and yeah, it's just, it's just not a way of communication that we're as used to. So I do think that's why sometimes it can be a real struggle to say some of those things because... If you said them to anyone else, mm. then you know that they would garner a, an elicit a kind of emotional response that you would be. What would be welcoming? A, yeah, welcoming. Yeah. yeah, and it's and it's hard when it's not like that. We have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest leaves a question for the next guest, not knowing who they're leaving it for. And boy, I have such a bad issue reading handwriting. <laughs> okay, what do you place? Oh, what do you pledge to do this year to live life? fully while you still make a difference <laughs> so, so hard <laughs> I, what do i pledge to do um i'm gonna be more present and attentive with the people that i love and i cherish and hold close to me <laughs> they're gonna clip roxy's gonna clip that <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna play it every time i'm gonna change some nappies as well i there pledge to that yeah that, that's i will change duty. a nappy okay it's already gone down to just being a singular nappy <laughs> but i will do a nappy that will happen well jack thank you thank you so much for your time today um i'm incredibly excited for your tour i'm actually coming with my team <gasps> that sounds a little bit amazing dodgy but <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm i will be attending your tour with my team um we're, we're, i believe we're going to the london show and i'm very very excited because i've been a big fan of yours for a very 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 long time um and your particular style of um comedy and performance i think is what makes you exceptional at what you do but also a very necessary voice in comedy because you i i, I just think where we are in the world with public discourse and polarization if there was ever a time for comedy mm. it is now mm. And so it's so lovely that with everything going on with the macroeconomic backdrop and all these things, we have great comedians out there adding a little bit of joy to people's lives. And that's really what you what you do through your work from, from my observation. If anybody wants to come to the Settle Down Tour, tickets are on sale now um, on the internet, wherever you get them. He's doing fucking shit tons of dates. Um, so I hope to see some of you at the London show in particular, because I'll be there. Um, but yeah, 
Thank you, Jack. It's been Thank you very much. It was lovely to chat. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.